Programming Throwdown, episode 160, Position Localization. Take it away, Patrick. Welcome to a nice uh, ending in zero episode. So it's like a 10th yeah. thing, 160, 16 tens we've had. It's our sweet 16. <laughs> That's true. Sweet, sweet Deca 16, I guess. Oh, I was trying to come up. Thank you. That was better. <laughs> you had it, you had it so I want to talk about something that I feel was always loitered around. I remember it going back a little bit of a nostalgia trip, and then we're going to take it forward. So I'm going to give why I'm bringing it up, and then, and then I'll, I'll sort of get into my, my monologue here. But I remember going back to, okay, not all the way when I was a kid, that's too far. But I remember going back to like the early 2000s and there being portable PCs. So not like a laptop. I mean, that's kind of been a thing. Like it's kind of obvious, but I'm talking about something in sort of like, okay, like a Game Boy Advance, Nintendo DS, that form factor. And the reason I'm bringing this up is the Steam Deck. So the Steam Deck is now sort of generally available. Just recently, it's been like, I think they're going to be in retail shops in Japan. I saw some cool pictures. And so instead of this hyped up, you know, hard to get big waiting list, you have to pay over asking, the Steam Deck has come out. And I want to talk about, so I have one. I hadn't played it a lot, but now I've been playing it more and more. And I'm going to sort of talk about like my journey, but also this nostalgia trip of, I remember there used to be Sony stores, Sony retail stores. And there was a specific mall uh, you know, I was older, but, you know, we were in the, I, this must have been, I didn't look at it, I should have looked it up, like 2001, 2002, 2003, that time frame. And uh, you would go to the Sony store and they would have, you know, the digital cameras and they yep. would have these little like VIO computers that had like little tiny keyboards and like a screen. And wow, this was, I never knew that. You, you know, before the iPhone, right before sort of on-screen capacitive sensing, so it was all like resistive touch. They didn't have a long life. There wasn't, you know, data over cell networks, wasn't like a, an everyday person thing. And so... It just weren't all that compelling. Maybe if you had like a very specific use case, you know, you would have done it. But for most folks, it, it wasn't super compelling. And I feel like, that, you know, they kind of ran Windows. Maybe you could get one that ran Linux if you were an elite hacker or had some <laughs> specific thing. But, you know, they, they kind of languished around. And then the Steam Deck, for some reason, like captured my, my excitement. Maybe in part, it's just I have this belief that I'm going to be a video gamer, even though I'm not really a video gamer. I'm just a casual gamer. Like I play just... <laughs> you know, iOS games or whatever. I'm not, not big on PC games. I hardly ever sit at my computer and play them. I do have one. It is not technically a gaming PC, but it does have a GPU. It is capable. I just don't sit there and, and, and play it very often. But I got the Steam Deck and I already had a bunch of games. Huge appeal to me that, you know, you can have lots of concerns about DRM or, or whatever. I'm just going to leave that aside for this conversation. But through various humble bundles and other things, I picked up lots of, you know, five to 10 year old video games, mm -hmm. which was like perfect for the Steam Deck. So can the Steam Deck play anything? Like, what's the connection between Steam and the Steam Deck? So this is the part that's really cool. So first, it already comes built in with access to your Steam library. Okay. The second thing is the way they've made it is, you know, in contrast to a lot of cell phones, it's, it's very commodity parts. So it's an x86 processor from AMD with an integrated GPU. And by default, it runs on Steam OS, which is built on top of Linux. But it very easily will let you drop back into Linux. You can attach a keyboard and mouse and, like, install your own packages. Wow. But you could also install Windows. You can dual boot. I haven't done that. It's a little off the beaten path because they're still working BIOS changes and stuff, stability. One day I think I'll do that. For now I'm not. So what they've done is they have this library called Proton. And Proton, I'm pretty sure this is correct. Proton is sort of like what Wine, Wine did, right? Like providing the Windows API calls and doing a translation under the hood. Ah, so okay. all of these developers have built all of these games, but most of them don't run on Linux sort of natively. They run on x86, but they, they make Windows or DirectX calls or whatever, and, and it can cause 
issues. And so there's this interface light wrapper that they will run and detect it. And they also provide this mapping from the keys and they have trackpads. They've done some really cool stuff on the hardware, but on the software side, yeah, it's super compelling. And so all these games just sort of like, they have ones that they verified work, which is a huge lift on their part that they're like trying to go through and figure out ones that work. And there are quite a surprising number that work fully. Like they understand the Steam Deck. They don't pop up uh, an on-screen keyboard that you need to type. Like they recognize, like you can use your gamepad to sort of enter. Got it. Um, and because now there's a lot of cross-play with PlayStation and you know Xbox and PC, a lot of developers have these kinds of things in mind when they're building the games. But it's just really coming to its own. And for me, what what I was trying initially was a few games like Dyson Sphere Program. I was really into that at the time. Like, I'm going to play this on my Steam. It was terrible. I hated it. It was not good. <laughs> I just needed a mouse and keyboard. People yeah. use the trackpad. They have actually a community that owns like all these different customizations. So you can just go to the library and people have like reviewed key mappings where like different spots on the like little touch pads on the side correspond to different things. And hardcore users are probably hating me because there's an amazing in-depth like customization group who probably spend as much time like optimizing settings and like running plugins to sort of manipulate like under the hood things. I'm not that person. They're just like install a game and try it. That's very satisfying for those people, you know, but it's, it's a whole like dedicated hobby. Yeah, it. It, yeah, it, like it becomes as much of a hobby as playing the game. Right. And some newer games like Elden Ring and stuff supposedly run really well. I'm too cheap to buy it, so like <laughs> I don't actually own it's it's too new, but it's like but it's like 10 bucks I'll buy it. And I've got a big backlog. But what I realized was embracing sort of more casual games that I had just never played before. So like everyone raves about Hades. I'd had it on Oh, it's a great my, one. My yeah. Xbox, but like on Steam Deck, it just works great because you it's it's sort of like a short run time sit and play, but it's not something I have some of those on my phone that, or my iPad that I'll try to play, like Dead Cells. But just like for me, having the gamepad and like, there's just a much better experience. How do you carry the Steam Deck? Like it doesn't fit in your pocket, right? So this is the kind of thing you, you need like a backpack. You have very big pockets. <laughs> you have those old Jinko jeans from like the 90s. Cargo pants. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so one of the things, I have a really nice carrying case that comes with it, but you're right, it's, it's really bulky. So now, though, that because there's enough of them have been moved and the community is, is sort of building up around it, you can actually get a variety of companies that are making at different price points, sort of silicone, like, wrapper things that go around the outside, like, rubberized uh, stuff that have, like, hatches over the top to protect your screen. So it won't survive, like, a drop in your backpack, but if you want to just slide it in and not have your screen get scratched, you could put a scratch protector. They also have little domes that cover the control sticks so they don't get, you know, knocked. Um, so I recently got ones and they have like little kickstand on the back so you can have a controller and like kickstand it up like on an airplane or something. So there's a lot of these things building up. And then I recently there's, you know, been a lot of hype. So the Switch is kind of Nintendo Switch is like in a similar form factor. I think that's been a great, you know, kind of cool thing that it's both the like successor to the Game Boy and Nintendo DS kind of lines, but also with the console from Nintendo. That's pretty cool in the same vein, in my opinion, it's almost similar hardware. But and now there's some new ones coming out as well from other companies. And what I just wanted to shout out is like, I think it's kind of here, like the sort of miniaturized computer, it, it you know, can have a web browser, plays all these games and is much more just yours than sort of the phone ecosystem. And they're going to kind of shrink. And then coming from the other end, there's a bunch of big phones put into the same sort of form factor, but a little bit smaller where they look like Game Boy Advances or whatever. And they're really just running Android emulators uh, and you can play retro games, but also Android games. So Dead Cells and things 
work great. And so they're sort of converging into this like middle ground of sizing that you can just play really, really powerful sort of like games and have this sort of on the go experience. I just think it's really cool. Yeah, I used to have back when slider phones were a big deal where you'd slide the keyboard, you know, from under the phone. Um, I used to have a phone. I don't remember what it's called. I think it's called a, I don't remember, but it was from Sony. And when you slid it, it was a gamepad. And oh. so you had like a full gamepad. It was a, you know, Android, you know, one or something very old. But that was amazing. I mean, I beat Final Fantasy VII on that. I mean, put like oh. a ton of hours into it. Eventually, like all the slider phones, the ribbon connecting the two halves, like fall, you know, fails. But yeah, that was that was phenomenal. The other thing that I was following for a long time, which sounds like the Steam Deck finally sort of cracked this walnut, but I was following Open Pandora, which was a uh, uh, basically it sounds exactly like the Steam Deck. It ran Linux. You know, it just the thing is, it, it was expensive and there were just always issues with it. And it just didn't have the level of polish for me to to dive in. And it sounds like the Steam Deck's really got it. I think for me, like, in part, it's not trying to be everything to everyone. Like, it's not trying to say, oh, this is going to be your laptop on the go because people just have their phones. <laughs> like, yep, that, that wasn't yep. a, that's not a need anymore. But some people just don't want to have a gaming PC. And I know folks that are like, yeah, I have a video game, but like, I, I don't like, what would I, I'm not going to spend that much money on a PC. Now go to the PC Master Race subreddit if you want and like, <laughs> you know, it, you know, indulge in your superiority. But there's a lot of folks who just aren't going to do that. And this is sort of like, a, I think, a good middle ground, right? Like, you don't necessarily take it on the go, like, you know, if you're just going to have a few minutes, but you could take it on a trip with you. Um, but you could also just play it on the couch or whatever. I, I know, I think it's, it's a pretty cool middle ground. And the sort of software stack that they're figuring out is really cool. Like all these Windows games being able to run on Linux. I think that's that's really awesome. Yeah, that is super, super cool. I'll have to check this out. It looks like it's around 600 bucks, five to 700, depending on the amount of, of storage you want. And the great thing is like it has really good support for the micro SD card. So I bought the smallest one and I, I, I isn't, it isn't a problem for me. Uh, I just put a really big micro SD card. Oh, that is cool. Although not cheap is also like I could take it to something else if I needed to or I stopped right. using it. It's a, less of a commitment. So, yep, that makes sense. All right. Very cool. Time for the news. Well, I did not prepare the ordering very well. So I'm the first up on no, the go news for article. It. All right. So I know Jason is somewhat of a, a retro video game enthusiast. So Definitely. I, I'm sure he's seen this person before. There's a YouTuber called Summoning Salt, who just makes the most like straightforward, if I tell, tell you what it's about, you're going to be like, whatever, I'm not that, like, this sounds so boring, which is just, like in-depth exploration, like an hour-long video of how the timed speedrunning records of various video games fall over time. Yep, this guy's amazing. So he gives her a narrative history, he does all this work. I was watching the one about Super Mario Brothers 300%. So there's like all these different categories. I know nothing about this. I don't have any desire to do this speedrunning. I'll cover this. Okay, so... Go for it. Go for it. In speedrunning, there's any percent, there's 100%, and then there's another one. I forgot the name of it. It's effectively 0%. So so any percent means you just have to get to the title, the, the ending screen, right? Um, 100% means there's a list of things you have to do. Which, which they can constitute 100% of the game and it's defined in advance and you have to get to the title screen. And then I think it's called mini percent, but basically it's a list of things that you're not allowed to do. Like for example, oh. there's actually in Zelda 2, I think it's Zelda 2 or one of the Zeldas, maybe all the Zeldas, you can actually beat the game without getting the sword. 
(laughs) It's really hard, but it's doable. And so there's like a speed run of, I think, Zelda 1 and Zelda 2, where you have to beat the game without getting the sword. That's called mini percent. So there, this guy has a variety. Uh, some of the ones about like Mario Kart, very interesting uh, games you've played. Sometimes you watch a run and it looks like seventy five percent of it just looks like very precise, like very like cool stuff. And then something will happen where he'll just walk through a wall. He'll yeah. be like, "Wait a minute, like what happened there?" And, and so there are, I guess, like there's rules about what's considered like a, a glitch and what's like an acceptable glitch. And so like, oh. If you bypass the whole game, you know, like to Jason saying, that doesn't really count. But if you're just like clipping through a wall, then that's okay. But what ends up happening is inadvertently, they talk a lot about video game programming. Like, oh, you know, Mario runs at this speed in pixels, which is a fractional amount because that's what they decided. So there's this like sub pixel counter. And so what someone's doing is they're trying to control this hidden variable, get it into a certain spot and then go do something so that they get the highest probability of like this thing, which is supposed to be random, like reliably occurring. And you just get into this very intertwined yeah. combination of like how, and the 100% one, this one that I, I'll have in the show notes, or if you just, you know, you can kind of look up, is brutal because it's many hours long because you have to play every level, every mini boss, every everything. And sometimes you get to the very last level and just there's something that's out of your control. It's just randomly the movement of this thing and you could get a really bad random number generator, RNG. And like ruin a, you'd have a world record run, get to three yeah, hours in about right. perfect frame inputs. And then all of a sudden it's just trashed because you know, you drew bad. Yeah. It's unfreaking believable. There's, um, my favorite of all of this is, um, I was watching, so you know, I'm a big fan of the final fantasy games. You know, I love the story and uh, I was, you know, when I was younger and I had the time, I would read a ton of fiction books and it, it really like kind of, uh, like touch that chord it's kind of like you know what it did it connected the fiction books i was reading to video games because up Mm. until then there was pac-man and then there were you know fiction books which had this really deep plot and story but were totally non-interactive and they occupied like two different worlds and final fantasy as primitive as it was and like the super nintendo whatever or the nintendo it like connected those two worlds which is really powerful for me so um so i wanted to watch the final fantasy 4 which is in the U.S. was called Final Fantasy II, that speed run. And uh, I watched the any percent, which means you just have to get to the ending screen however you can. Um, and so I'm watching this person's like, yeah, playing this like perfect game and doing things like you'd only do if you do what was coming ahead and everything, right? But then he gets to, you know, this um, tower where this ruby gets stolen, which is about like a fifth of the way through the game. And the video is almost over. And I'm just scratching my head here. And basically what he found is, there's a spell called warp and warp takes you up a level in a dungeon. So if you're, you know, on, on like two levels down in a, in a underground dungeon, it'll take you to one level. It doesn't take you out completely. That's the exit spell. It'll take you like a little bit closer to the exit. And if you're going up a tower, you know, it takes you down, it takes you a little bit closer to the nearest town. Right. But there's this one part of the game where the developers kind of forgot that they had to think about this warp spell. And when you cast warp, it just takes you into like random memory where you don't belong. (laughs) And he's walking around. And as he's walking around, like every tile is just random, like and none of it is coherent. And then he walks forward, walks around. And then all of a sudden he gets the ending credits. (laughs) I was like, I was like, okay, all right. I guess that happened. (laughs) If you're ever looking for the like, 
I don't know. It's like a very nerdy kind of documentary thing, but it's just, it's, for me, it's very easy to just like sit there and watch. I don't know what about like the way these particular ones are done. It's just, it's so easy to just tune out and just like, yeah, almost like in the background, like it's not that I'm doing something else. I'm just literally watching it, but just like, it's relaxing. It's just, yeah, it's very like, yeah, I don't know. Meditative. It, I encourage you if you've never done it before. I was going to say that because that feels <laughs> a little wrong. But uh, yeah, if you've never watched one of these, something saw, there's a few other individuals who also do uh, descriptions of these time time runs, which are also really good. There's, a, I guess, a community of them and they're all very good. Very cool. Um, my first show topic is really wild. It's, it's auto GPT reaches 100,000 stars. So you know, it took PyTorch like multiple years to reach 100,000 stars. There's only two, as far as I know, there's only, well, now three GitHub projects of 100,000 stars. One is TensorFlow, one is PyTorch, and now we have AutoGPT. You know, to be honest, I've heard like the most insane stuff about AutoGPT. What I think it, it does is I think you... You go in and and kind of like connect this to a bunch of uh, other other projects, but what I've heard is are things like people have got Auto GPT to like reduce their monthly payments. So this one guy said, uh, you know, Auto GPT, you know, like here's all my tax form or not tax forms, here's all my um, banking statements, you know, reduce my monthly bill. And apparently, Auto GPT, and this almost sounds fake. But I had to read it this multiple times to convince myself it's real. AutoGPT found this like Wi-Fi airplane charge and said, hey, you know, you can actually send an email to the airline company to like cancel your Wi-Fi airplane charge. And because they don't do it anymore and they'll retroactively like give you your money back. And it, it even drafted the email. And so he sent, he copied the email from AutoGPT, sent it to Verizon, and they like credited him 30 bucks. And it like also like canceled some other things. I don't know. I've just heard absolutely insane stories about this AutoGPT. I, I have a friend who is in finance and was using it to like take care of some things, like with taxes and all of that. I have to really, you know, we should maybe do a whole show on this. I have to really wrap my head around what this is. And like how it's different than just GPT four or or you know Chat GPT, but it's just blowing up in popularity. Yeah, there's a few of these self prompting GPTs. So I watched a video on one because I was curious as well. And they are mashing together a bunch of tools. So there's a couple of like infrastructure plays. So there's like vector databases, um, and there's a few paid and, and unpaid. And you can sort of connect them up to one of those. You can also just tell it to like do its work locally. There's various trade offs depending on what computer you're on, like how much, you know, memory you can use. And we talked about like locally running some of these as well. And it'll use the like tokenizer from OpenAI. So you can kind of plug that in and choose configure it on your computer. And, and it's not hosted. So different than going to like OpenAI and going into ChatGPT and typing something, you're like connecting it or hosting your own sort of infrastructure. And the one that I watch is, is more or less, and you see this like, oh, it built me a website or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and you sort of give it a task list, like something it's trying to accomplish. Uh, so the one I watched was like, build me a healthy meal plan for this week. And so uh, it tries to figure out, okay, what do I need to ask you to do that? And then it'll ask you some questions like, you know, hey, uh, what kind of food allergies do you have or whatever? And you're kind of giving it answer. So rather than, you know, asking it questions, you're sort of saying, I want you to do these things. And it's figuring out what order to tackle them in. Oh, okay, I'm going to build you 
Thai food on Monday. And you can tell it to either go ahead and just do whatever it wants. Or the mode I was watching, it was like prompting, hey, I want to issue a Google search for like best Thai dishes that are high in protein or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it'll sort of figures out that query. It'll issue it off to Google if you tell it to. And then it sort of scrapes and parses the feedback and decides what to do next. So rather than you saying, hey, next, I want you to do Tuesday, it knows, okay, I'm done with Monday. I'm going to go to Tuesday. Like uh, now I'm building Tuesdays. Tuesday, I'm going to give you, uh, you know, burger and fries. And so like, you know, I'm going to ask for something and it could suggest for stuff it knows about, hey, I want to, you know, schedule an air, uh, a schedule a, a DoorDash for you on Tuesday to like get, I know McDonald's burgers. It's terrible. That's not very <laughs> nutritional. But like, you know, it, it, and, it, that, and this is where those sort of uh, kind of, I want to call them like magical moments come in where it's like, oh, like, oh, that's really cool. Or I wouldn't have thought about that right, or whatever. Right. And it's this sort of like more of an assistant thing rather than, a, you know, chatty agent on the other end. And I think that reformulation is, is pretty interesting. Yeah, it's tapping into all the state, right? Like, like if you had a plugin that like kept... Now, this is itself a, an open AI problem. But if you had like the state of your refrigerator somehow, you know, it could tap into that. And you could say, you know, make me Thai food. And it would say, oh, based on what you have in your pantry and your fridge, like here's something you can make right now. Or like here's like the bare minimum you need to get from the store. But it's like, yeah, adding that state, I think, is just like taking something that's already a breakthrough. And I think it's just making like breaking through another barrier. I think we'll see some really cool stuff. But I think we're also going to bump into some limitations where like it's one it's sort of like the initial and even today, if you try to ask the Google Assistant on Android or you try to ask Siri on iOS like or Alexa, when you ask it something it knows about, it will give you like very incredible results and you'll think like it's really smart. But then occasionally ask something like just off the beaten path or give it a phrasing that's equivalent, but it doesn't understand that phrasing. And it just, it kills over and just gives you something like horrible. And Mm -hmm. it's just like, when you stay in the lane, it's super cool. But as soon as you get off the edge, the like, it's a very steep cliff and it just degrades. There's no like graceful fallback. And it often misunderstands you, right? Like it, it thinks you're asking one thing, you're asking actually something very different. And so I think we're going to run into the same one here. I think there's this initial excitement. And I think a lot of folks coming out and saying, this is not something that AI researchers sort of predicted, but like the practical application sort of like got there a lot faster. And sort of like, the question is, where does it tap out? Like, do we hit a, you know, asymptotic slowdown and sort of like need the next unlocking? And there was some, you know, open AI stuff saying they're not going to just grow the network again. They need to go think about architecture and you know, how right. to be more efficient. They can't just keep adding more parameters. Yeah, I mean, actually, a lot of different ways to take that. But one thing I wanted to say really quick, because I've seen this come up a lot. I've actually had people ask me this. So people working in AI research for like, you know, FANG companies or OpenAI, like we're not all part of a CIA operation. <laughs> Let me just get this out there. I've had people like tell me like, oh, this is all like run by the government or everyone's like a state actor or whatever. And no, uh, it's not. I've not heard this. This is news to me. I didn't know you worked for the CIA. <laughs> I don't know why I keep getting this. But like, uh, no, like, like, uh, and so like, you know, I think you're right that people in AI are just as surprised as anybody else that it took off. I mean, you know, it's actually been incremental, you know, on the research side, but it just the, the way the commercial applicability, like the way that that just took off. Uh, really surprised everyone. I know people at OpenAI and they're surprised. And so there is no like conspiracy here. Uh, everyone, you know, this is just like one of those 
like, uh, you know, when you're playing Civilization and you just get a breakthrough or something randomly, like it's just one of those things. There's no, there's no secret there. I do feel like you know it's going to have a big impact, even as is. I think copywriters. I actually got a spam call, which was I'm pretty sure a GPT based spam call, because uh, you know it it had like my name and it was like it it felt like a real person, but it was. It was like in the uncanny valley. So I, I knew it was a recording, but it was so contextual that I thought, well, let me just see where this goes. So I said, yeah, this is me. This is Jason. And then it like went off and like said this whole monologue and I couldn't interrupt it. And then I hung up. But like, you know, that first part, I think, was actually done by like that's more text to speech, I guess, than GPT. But um, I guess we're just getting to the point where like, I think it's really going to have like all this research we've been doing is really going to have some effect on the world, which is kind of wild. And like anything, it's going to have, you know, a thousand positive effects, 999 negative effects, and hopefully it will be slightly better at the end. Okay, we could dwell on this, but I'm going to keep us moving because I have a lot of thoughts here. <laughs> so my next is, uh, I guess I could have made a book of show, but whatever, here it's here in the news links, which is build your own database from scratch. Uh, and this is free online, um, but they also have a print version that you can purchase by James Smith, who actually has a couple other similar style books of build something from scratch. Um, I will disclaim, I have this is why it's in the news section, not the book section. I haven't actually read this book yet, but I did skim through the topics. I have it as like my perpetually growing list of bookmarks, which is nice. most of my Steam backlog. Um, but, you know, I'm trying, I want to kind of go through this about you know, how do you start with key value store, B trees, that kind of stuff, move to relational queries, query planning, query execution. What I will say is, you know, I took a database course in college. They were, I feel like it missed a lot because it, it kind of went into the, what is that called? Sort of relational algebra stuff, whatever that I, I just really, I wasn't going to be an academic research. It wasn't interesting to me. Yeah, this is a, uh, this is a total blind spot for me. I mean, I use databases, oh, really? but I have no idea how. Oh, I'm about to talk about you. Hold tight. One second. <laughs> but I, I was forced to learn SQL as well as part of that, like the practical portion of the course. And then I kind of forgot about it. I did a bunch of embedded work and, and it was no, no nothing. Then when I moved to Silicon Valley, one of my early jobs required me to write a lot of SQL and really learn sort of joints. And I, I'm by no means an expert. But what I realized after learning it is even if you're not going to use SQL day to day and people who don't, I've begun to realize there's people who are very scared of it or slash don't know it. And so they'll do anything they can to not have to write a SQL query. And then people who know it are just like, oh, yeah, I'll turn one of those out for you. No problem. And there's mm -hmm. this rap and we've had a series of interviews, really great interviews with people trying to kind of say, stop worrying how this like 10 year ago mentality that if you have a relational database in your stack, you're doomed to not scale. Like this is not a problem that it used to be. It's right. still something to consider, but there's a lot of workarounds for it. There's a lot better tech stack now around it. But we sort of, a lot of people, <clears throat> not that you've sort of self-incriminated, <laughs> but kind of like fell into this, like, I'm not going to write SQL queries and I'm going to use this crutch excuse that like... Well, wait, wait, I'm not that... No, I use the SQL query. I just don't actually know a lot about how databases work under the oh, hood. Oh, under the hood. Oh, okay. All right. Well, then you're not the one I'm talking about. Okay. We'll get to you in a second. No. I also don't know how it runs. And I'm not a great SQL query writer, but I know enough to like get it done. And I think there's a lot of unlock there that happens when you sort of know how to do joins, you know how to do where clauses and... Just, yes, you could do it in Python. That's what everyone said. Oh, I could just do it in Python. I could just open this and open that. 
But if you're going to do a bunch of ad hoc queries, like many of them, and each of them are sort of ephemeral, you just want to do them once, get your answer and be done. And you're never going to run it again. You don't really care about it. There is a value to having a bunch of data crammed into a database. I'm going to refer to this in my tool of the show. Uh, but just, you know, that style of data available so you can run your analysis and get out. Not everyone has to do that, but it occasionally comes up. And sort of just writing a Python script takes a lot longer because you can do more. It can, it's more flexible, it's more powerful. Yes, but that's not what you're looking for. And so a lot of people are really hesitant. I found, for whatever reason, from traditional CS backgrounds, it's like a stigma, I think, from database administrators from a while ago. Like no one wanted to get into that job. They didn't appreciate that job. I have a ton of respect for those people, but I think it was a thankless job for a long time. Mm -hmm. I think that's changed. And uh, anyways, that's well off topic. I think I'm really excited to check this book out. You, like you said, Jason, I also, I know what B trees are. I know that they're used in databases. Yep. I get sort of the vague thing, but how is indexing done? How are relational queries like optimized? This is super fascinating to me. I would love to learn more. Uh, and it feeds into my like general diatribe about like, hey, embrace SQL, stop hating it. Yeah, you know, I actually, uh, I'm in the, exactly the same position where, you know, so many people do Python or even C or C++ it's it, like uh, to to you know analyze some data files, and um, there's actually an amazing tool called DuckDB. Oh, almost had that as my tool of the show. Oh, that's literally your tool of the show. No, 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 no. I almost did. Oh, almost did DuckDB. Okay, TLDR DuckDB is a way where you can take files on your computer, like CSVs, your know, co column separated files, and all of that, and you can write SQL queries against them and. Uh, yeah, I mean, the thing about SQL is nothing beats it as well, except maybe Perl, but nothing beats SQL in terms of being short and, you know, doing what you want. Yeah, I think SQL is much more readable than Perl. So so I would say SQL is really the best if performance isn't, you know, super critical and you want to, you know, synthesize some data. SQL is just absolutely amazing. Another rant we could get on. We will have to come back to this later. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Um Man, yeah, I mean, we're, we're uh, this is one of these things like we're recursively generating more episode. We uh, are RGPT. <laughs> yeah, we have, we, have, we have PT, GPT. So cool. My, my second one is asking generative art AI to render mathematical theorems. And so what this person did is, is they, they as, as it suggests, they took a bunch of mathematical theorems and they put it into Midjourney, which if you don't know, Midjourney is similar to Dolly or one of these other ones where you just type in a text prompt and they generate a picture. And so this person put in these math theorems as text prompts and the pictures they generate are awesome. I mean, they're not, you know, you can't recover the theorem or anything like that, but, but it's just like these crazy kind of like repeating structures. So like, for example, he has... um the uh the bare category theorem which states in a complete metric space the intersection of countably many dense sets remains dense and so he puts that into midjourney and what you get out of it is this like fractal of of like new age architecture it's like these buildings that are kind of embedded inside of a uh, a very sort of like 3d cubist kind of environment and they're just fractally you know going off into into this like fixed point in the distance now let's just say like another one that i thought was really cool was uh every vector space has a hamill basis 
that would be really hard, right? Because, you know, even a GPT system probably isn't, you know, like it's seen Hamill bases so rarely that it's probably not in there. But what it generated was like a bunch of planets in this like uh, space, uh, you know, universe. And the planets are like some of them are just floating, but then some of the planets are trapped inside this cube that is, looks like it's being assembled in real time. And, you know, there's, this is all just a static image, but you kind of get this feeling of time. And then and then underneath the universe, there's there's like an aurora and standing on the aurora is like a family, like looking at the whole thing. It's just like it's just amazing. Like, I mean, I, any of these would be just phenomenal portraits to have in your house or, or at your dorm room or something. So, yeah, check these out. It's definitely pretty cool eye candy. Yeah, I feel like I'm not. I will admit, like, I'm not a sort of art appreciator historian. Like, I go to museums and I, I enjoy looking at them, but I don't, I don't know, get into sort of the background explanation, like the, the cause or the feeling of it. But just like going and appreciating, like, the craft or the novelness of doing these mm-hmm. remind me of these procedural uh, generative art stuff, which is, which is pretty cool because they're not generating code to generate the thing. They're just generating it directly. Right, um, right. But it definitely picks up that style. There are some weird nuances like this one about every prime number greater than one or every number greater than one can be represented as a product of prime numbers. And it has a bunch of numbers on the globe, but the numbers are really distorted. Uh, it's kind of interesting, like, it's an interesting piece to look at. But yeah, it's kind of funny how it kind of knows what numbers look like, but it doesn't actually know what are valid numbers. So you get kind of like a rune set. It's kind yeah, of... Yeah, this one is wild. This is a bit a bit weird, but yeah, definitely cool to look at. I I mean, if nothing else, I could totally see me as not a, a art background person doing something like this, and then like using it as inspiration to like clean it up and do my own thing. It's sort of the you know, yeah. Growing up, I had that or whatever. Like, or when I was a younger programmer, like someone just give me an interesting problem. Like, I feel like I have tools, but I don't know what problem to solve. I feel like you could go here, type one of these get like inspiration and then just go make the art you want to see like oh this is really cool i'm gonna go do that and it's sort of akin but like an on-demand search of a lot of folks start their art by copying existing art and sort of learning what makes it that and so i feel like this could be the same thing except like you're not copying someone so you don't run into the same like what's derivative versus like plagiarism i got i have a mind-blowing idea okay okay all right let's go so if anyone does this you know I don't have to be like get shares of your company, but I at least want to get added on added on Twitter. So here's my idea. Okay. It's a little bit creepy. It's one of these things that's like you can't tell if this is creepy or cool. Um, you tell me, Patrick, creepy or cool. So you get a digital picture frame, like a digital portrait, right? So so like imagine like a large canvas portrait, but it's it's a big screen, right? And so you hang that up on your wall and it's got a microphone. And so it listens to your conversations, right? And then in some privacy-preserving way... (laughs) (laughs) Hand wave. Maybe it's running Dolly locally. I don't know yet. But let's say it takes the conversations you're having in your house and it creates art based on the things you're saying in your own house Uh... and then displays the art. So if if you start... I, no, this this is gonna go sideways really fast. <laughs> so if you have an argument, you know, even the pictures start getting angry. <laughs> 
I think this would be wild. I mean, I think it would take a lot of tuning to know like what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. That's what I was going to say. Also, like you're having a conversation about someone who's not in the room and then they come into the room and like... (laughs) Yeah, like you have a conversation like, you know, so-and-so is so rude and then... Like, well, unless they're famous, you know, it's not going to show them, but it's going to show just like a rude person on the wall or whatever. Oh, so you have privacy preserving microphones, but the cameras, that's too creepy. Like, you, it's never going to learn who people are. That crosses the line. Oh, yeah. So no, you can no. listen to what you are, but. Right, right. So it's listening. Okay. Oh, that's an interesting idea. I hadn't even thought about the camera angle. Like, maybe, oh, what about this? I got it. I got it. Okay. So this, this might be more more practical. It has a camera and it draws like a caricature of whoever's sitting on the couch. That could be like a, cool. like a court portrait kind of thing. Like Yeah, like, you know, when you go to... You're, someone's getting offended really fast. <laughs> you go to, like, a tourist destination, and they will draw, like, your caricature, you know, and it's basically the same three, the same theme. Everyone kind of looks more or less the same. Like, giant heads, I, mean, I don't know why. Body. When I tried this, mine just keeps drawing me as a professional bodybuilder. So, like, I... I, I, I... <laughs> Oh, man. I think, oh, man, this would be uh, really well. I wonder if I have a, you know, I actually have a spare monitor. I wonder if I could mount a spare monitor on the wall in the living room and actually make this. Uh, this, you, I, I mean, I guess you have to add us on Twitter if you do. Or <laughs> add us on Twitter is like you add, all of Twitter. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's that awesome. All right, we'll go to book of the show. Book of the show. My book of the show, actually speaking about retro, is an app. I think it's on iPhone, but it's definitely on Android called Fighting Fantasy Classics. So for people who don't know, there were a bunch of books called Fighting Fantasy books uh, made by Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone. And they're basically choose your own adventure books, but along the, you need dice, so they have to bring your own dice. And along the way, you occasionally have to roll dice and certain things happen. And you can actually get to a point where, you know, you just roll badly and, and you lose. Uh, but there's also a, an adventure sheet. So the idea is you would Xerox the adventure sheet to make a copy of it. And you would keep track in the adventure sheet of your uh, equipment and your health and all of that. And so based on the choices you make, like you might make a choice that says, you know, lose one stamina or roll the dice. And if it's, you know, 10 or less, you lose a stamina. And if you lose, if any of your attributes go to zero, that's it. So if your skill goes to zero, you're kind of just like incapacitated. Your stamina goes to zero, you're dead. I think your luck could go to zero and then you just lose every luck roll after that. And so, you know, the the books were amazing, really great stories. There are about 400 sections. There'd be multiple sections in a page. So, you know, at the top right, there's sort of the page count, but instead of going one, two, three, four, you know, like one page might be, you know, one through seven or something, because it's seven short things telling you, like, go to the next section. I love these as a kid. I thought the stories were great. A lot of really interesting themes that I think, you know, they're really exploring. You know, nowadays, everything is either, you know, zombies or World War Two or, you know, space marines. But, you know, in, in a lot of these fighting fantasy books, there are some really exotic, you know, worlds that they were putting together here. You know, some became tropes like space assassin, but then other ones, I'm trying to remember one of the more esoteric ones. There was, oh, there was um one, I think it was called uh, Battle with Evil, but evil was an acronym, E-V-I-L, or it was like date with evil. And it was basically this like technocratic future 
where everyone has crazy augmentations and stuff. So I, I loved it. And anyways, with this app, you can go and buy all these old books. And so I think it's like a dollar or two bucks a book. The app comes with one for free. And uh, I've been really getting into it. It's been a blast. I've been getting my kids into it. You know, depending on the book, you know, some of them might be more kind of like you might need to have older kids. Like there's one that was something from hell, creature from hell or something like that. And mm. it's like pretty demonic. And so like, I think it would give one of my kids nightmares. So you have to kind of like <laughs> judge how, whether you want to be up all night with your kid the night after. But I've been, I've been a big fan. I've been really you know, geeking out on that. Very cool. I've never gotten into these. I always wanted to, but I, I always feel like a unresistible urge to just cheat my stats or like to get a role that I wanted. And, and then just, I don't know. Well, this kind of fixes it by adding achievements. So you uh, can, they actually have three ways of playing. First way you could just cheat. So basically uh, you can go to any page you want. You can make every role to be whatever you want it to be. There's a second mode where you basically have a rewind button. And mm. um, you have X number of rewinds and you can get achievements in that mode. And then there's the hardcore mode. The thing about the thing about these books is I do feel like you, know, you don't want to get, you know, three hours in the book. And that's like, do you go right or left? I go right. You die, you know, or something like that. Like you need a rewind button. Otherwise, uh, it's just hard to use your time efficiently. Right. And you could play with rewind and get uh, achievements, and that kind of keeps you motivated to play honestly, semi honestly, <laughs> <laughs> or exploratorily, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Very cool. My book of the show is not related. It is Evolutions in Bread, Artisan Pan Breads and Dutch Oven Loves Loaves at Home. Nice. Uh, which is a mouthful by uh, Ken Forkish. I've talked about his. Well, I don't know if it's his first book, but another book he has, which is Flour, Water, Salt, Yeast. Um, I, I don't know, for whatever reason, I got it in my head that like, I wanted to do like cook some bread, pastry, something like once a week, I, I just to like develop improvement at it. Cause I was always like kind of messing around with it and it just never kind of went anywhere. Cause I didn't do it often enough. So I always forgot what I knew before and people are like, I'll keep a journal. I'm terrible at doing that. Like, I don't know. So my, my solution was I just keep doing it and, you know, making sure that, you know, I do it often enough that I sort of keep it in my... I was going to say, how often do you do this? So like, now I try to do... I've been trying to do some sort of, like, low, yeast risen thing. So either a bread or, <laughs> okay. like, a pastry or something once a week. So, oh, nice. Um, which is probably very terrible for my, uh, like, you know, uh, distribution of nutritional value, <laughs> eating a lot of carbohydrates. Um, but, but it is what it is. Um, but I attempt various things. The original flour, water, salt, yeast, and like the sort of movement in sourdough had always been to do these like free form, I guess they call, I don't know how you say that, were boules, B-O-U-L-E, like these boules oh, yeah. where it's like, just like a domed circle, right? Or maybe uh, um, like slightly an oval. And this was like, you know, you, you kind of put them in the pan, but you don't give them any support. They just sit on like a hot stone or in a Dutch, Dutch oven, which is like a, basically like a cast iron pot with a lid. To, to kind of keep in the steam. Um, but this is actually very difficult because it just, if you don't do a good job, it just like spreads out and becomes more like a pancake than a beautiful, like tall loaf of bread. And so anyways, this new book, uh, Evolution of the Bread, is sort of talking about, Ken sort of points out, he's sort of like evolving his, how he's thinking about this easiness and who does he need to prove this to? Like, what is, what is the point of doing that? It is like a pinnacle if you're trying to show your like, 
artisanal abilities and that you are very competent and able to handle everything that's needed to go exactly right to generate one of these loaves, it is an achievement. But if you're ultimately just trying to like have a tasty loaf of bread, if you put it in a pan, you get support. So the Mm. window of like technique that allows you to get into a nice edible loaf of bread when you're sticking it in a loaf pan is actually like, it's a much bigger target that you're aiming for than what's required to do one of these sort of like free form unbounded loaves. So long winded way to say like, if you're at all like thinking about making bread and you sort of the whole pandemic thing was like everyone make a sourdough starter because you couldn't buy yeast and like make these beautiful loaves and people boasting, this is my first time I ever made bread. And it's just, yeah, that wasn't me. (laughs) And I actually, even though I was doing it routinely, I still fail quite often and it was somewhat frustrating. Wait, so when you fail, is it like you said, like a pancake? Is that the most common way that it fails? So I mean, it can fail for a lot of reasons. Um, If you're trying to do like a self-cultured sourdough, there's a lot more ways for it to fail because you don't know, I wasn't getting familiar with my sourdough culture. You don't add commercial yeast. Commercial yeast is very standardized. So if you know the temperature of your house, you pretty much know like when to expect like the bread to be ready to bake Uh. and how much gas the yeast has made is a very important factor to success. Like it's a very narrow window from underproofed to overproofed. If you miss the window entirely, you end up with like something that doesn't really look very good. And if you end up on either range, it's just not perfect. And getting it exactly right is how you sort of get the perfect one. But with a sourdough culture, depending on when you most recently fed it, what the distribution of like bacteria to yeast is in the culture, like exactly how you did it, there's like many more variables. And so, yeah, when it fails, you typically, in my experience, you either end up with like a sloppy mess that just like doesn't really rise and isn't really bread-like, or you end up, it's sort of right, but it, it expands. And so instead of staying tight and getting tall, where you get like a fluffy loaf, it sort of collapses down and you get a denser, like, you know, oh. very flat loaf. What do you do when you mess up? Do you feed that to the ducks? Like, is it safe? Do you still eat it? No, it's it? totally safe to eat. There's nothing wrong in it. It's, okay. it's completely edible. And in fact, actually, like right out of the oven, if you've never had it before, even like the mistakes are still very good. Oh, like, okay. They, they're warm and it has the beautiful bread smell. Uh, I mean, if you burn it, <laughs> sure, oh, sure. Like, right. it's kind of ruined. But if, if you just like, I still cook them even when I know that they've gone wrong and I still eat them um, and my family will eat them as well. Uh, but after sort of the couple hour window after making it, they typically, it's, uh, yeah. it's not something you would sort of want to eat anymore. So like you said, we could, we'll toast it up for croutons or... You oh, that know, makes sense. You know, you can kind of do, like you said, you can feed it to the ducks. You don't need to throw it away. Um, but yeah, that is that is awesome. The book, book book advises potentially considering what I have tried as well. If I know it's a failure now, I'll sort of scrape it and put it in a pan and bake it. And the chances when it goes into a loaf pan, it's got support. So it'll rise and it uh, tends to be closer or more useful than uh, not not as good as like a properly done one into a pan, but like a lot better than the alternative. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, if, so, like, if you were to go to the grocery store and get a loaf of bread where they all kind of look the same, they, they definitely use pans, right? Because they look so uniform. They sometimes will sell, like, these these sort of round ones. Um, but, yeah, if you get, like, the go to the bread aisle, not to a bakery. Yeah, those are all in pans. Yeah, absolutely. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. Cool, man. Um, so, if you are interested in making bread, uh, check out our <laughs> link on the show notes. If you use our link to buy 
any of these books on any of the episodes, you know, that helps out the show, allows us to reach more people. Um, if you, whether you do that or not, if you also want to support the show, you can follow us on Patreon. So that's patreon.com slash programming throwdown. Uh, we really appreciate all the patrons out there who, uh, you know, kind of continue to support the show, help out with all the hosting costs, help us reach new people and, and all that good stuff. And with that, it is time for tool of the show. My tool of the show is Jinja. Have you ever used Jinja, Patrick? Once. Once? Okay. <laughs> Enough to know what it is. Cool. Yeah, Jinja is really interesting. So the way that a lot of people know about, you know, templating is through PHP. So, you know, people have done PHP where you're, you're writing some HTML and then you maybe want a button that is red if the person's credit card is expired and it's gray if the credit card isn't expired. And so you're you know going through writing and then all of a sudden you do like, I forgot what it is in PHP. I think it's like open bracket, question mark, PHP, you know, and you can write some if statements and then you can emit, you know, different, you know, colors depending on some logic in your program. But then all of that is, is in your HTML code. And so you know, now your HTML file or maybe your .php file, you know, has like a, a, you know, a bunch of things you want to output, a bunch of text or content you want to output but then also has some logic. And, and that logic is sort of describing a whole bunch of different outcomes, like a choose your own adventure book. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and so then what happens is you pass it through you know, some type of templating engine. And so it will you know, replace all of that logic with you know, whatever answer it comes to. And so you end up with just a pure HTML file at the end. So it turns out you could do this for anything. Like you can have... There's no reason why this only has to be a PHP thing or HTML thing. You can just, anytime you're emitting any text, you can emit, like you could create something that has, uh, you know, logic built into the actual text. And then you just have to wrap it in, in this sort of templating command, which will, you know, you give that command the text, which has the logic in it. And then you give it the context. So, you know, the variables that, you know, you expect it to be using. And then what it will return is, you know, the final text with all the templates resolved. And so there's actually a lot of places where, um, you know, either you're sending text to somebody, you're rendering text on a website, you know, even if you're running, like I'm um, building a command line app at the moment. And so the command line app is, you know, writing a lot of text to the console you know, you could put all of this logic in Python or C++ or whatever language, but it starts to become really cumbersome because now you have sort of this disconnect where you have, you know, a lot of your content sitting in one file, but then you have all these, you know, rules to manipulate it in the other in somewhere else. And, and you know, templating engines kind of solve that in a really elegant way. I was looking at, you know, I needed to do something like this pretty extensively. You know, I looked at a lot of different options and I found Jinja to be really quite nice. I used a combination of Jinja and afterwards I did a regex, kind of a post-processing step. And between the two of them, it, it, it actually produced like a pretty beautiful kind of environment to make content. So, um, so yeah, if you've never used a templating engineer, if you don't know what that is, you know, take some time to go through the Jinja docs, understand like what it does. There's a really great documentation that has a lot of uh, examples and it might be sort of like a hole 
your craft. Like there, there's actually, I think, a place for for these kind of things uh, in, in most apps. So, I think, as you mentioned, it, it, it can be really useful to separate out. People have that, hey, I want to make a report. Maybe it's as an HTML page or a LaTeX and you're going to make, you know, compile it to something else or, or whatever that, you know, hey, I'm going to just emit the like markdown from my, you know, let's just say C++, I'm going to standard C out, you know, all the output or standard to the file stream, you know, the stream out, stream operator out. But then you end up with this like nasty coupling, like your, your code doesn't really want the data to live in it like that. It's just, it's sort of ugly. It doesn't, it doesn't work that well. So what I've been able to do, yeah, like, like you're mentioning is sort of say, Hey, I want to make a weekly report and I keep just writing the same thing over and over again. So I want something that says, you know, put the date here and I'm going to make an image and I just want the file path where I make the image to go here. And then you run it through and it, it's a time saving and it separates it out. And depending on how much of that style task you do, it could be a huge game changer. Yeah, totally. I wonder if there's some type of plugin for Google Docs where you can write kind of like macros that, you know, have Jinja templates in them. There's got to be something like that. I'm sure. I feel like I've never used customer relationship management CRM tooling, but I feel like a lot of CRM tooling also supports these kinds of templating because that's how you get those like personalized spam emails, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. hey, it's been 73 days since, you know, we last contacted you and you bought this thing and your name is this. And like, it's like, I, I, this is, that's how those are all done, I assume. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. Have you ever gotten... uh have you ever seen something where there was an error in the CRM tool and you got someone else's stuff? No, I've seen ones where they didn't like replace out whatever macro. And oh, yeah, says, that's a good one. Too. You bought on date. And it's <laughs> yeah. like, oh, oops. you bought on bracket bracket date. <laughs> no, there was an issue where where Uber was uh, trying to solicit like former Googlers and they were sending kind of blanket emails to basically anybody they knew who worked at Google in the past. But there was an off by one error. And so oh. I got an email and it was like, hello, like Jonah Grossberg, uh, you know, uh, like, well, you should come to Uber. Like we 4X last year or whatever. I was part of this like ex-Googlers kind of like LinkedIn group. Or I think I'm still still in there somewhere. And yeah, someone posted and they're like, hey, you know, I got an email from Uber for someone else's name. And yeah, it turns out they sent like thousands of those. <laughs> and it's like, Yeah, I don't know what the line is between the like, mass marketing emails the like crm individuals and like these kind of middle ground like blanket things I, I don't that ecosystem i understand what the tools are and where they live kind of thing but i don't actually know uh, i'm not very familiar with the space i think that there's a huge opportunity here for i mean think about like all the communication that you do that is very regular i think that yeah you know, i almost wonder if we need like a crm for you know, normal people, like, like, like something that doesn't require so much ramp up. They have one. It's, I think it's called Julia CRM. Oh, yeah? No, that's not it. There is one that's like a CRM for, for like your home life. Right, right. I always like intrigued. I have it on my list somewhere. Oh, no. This, okay, we'll have to look at it. But yeah, I think that there is an opportunity there. But yeah, that's my tool of the show. If you don't, if you've never used templating in your in your stuff, definitely check this out. Learn about it. It's a good skill to have. Oh, Monica. Ah, that's it. Monica. Oh. All right, good. I found it. No, I don't feel so bad. Monica. Open source personal CRM helps organize your social interactions with your loved ones. Wow, interesting. So I think, yeah, you give it your contacts. You sort of say when you've talked to people, how often you'd want to talk to them, that kind of stuff. 
Wow, this is fascinating. Okay, all right. I don't have a review for it, so <laughs> maybe uh, next time we can make it our tool of the show. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to do a bit of research on this. All right, my tool of the show is Rill, R-I-L-L, which is a little difficult to Google. So it's RillData.com, R-I-L-L data.com. And its sort of tagline is radically simple metrics dashboards, but it feeds right into what we were talking about. I believe actually a default like backend it wants to use is DuckDB, which is why I was like laughing. Oh, interesting. So it, it uh, is a local dashboard you can run. You can sort of start it up. You can Jupyter Notebook. You run the tool, it opens a, a website, and then you can sort of add in a CSV file. You can point it at a SQLite database. You can point it at a Postgres database if you have one. Uh, and what it does is it kind of does those things you automatically want to do. Like if you had a CSV file that was like, for me, it's always like, oh, how many of this type of thing, how many of that type of thing where I have some string that is an enum or whatever, and it'll give you the sort of like breakdown, like this percentage, that percentage, it lets you sort of explore your data. You, if you have timestamps, it sort of understands timestamps and can show you things over time and bucketed. You can also give it models, which is like how to extract the kind of thing in a, in a SQL query for what you want. You can have dashboards where you sort of write SQL queries against it. And it's just a really quick way to just like point it at a CSV and sort of have it pretend or a set of CSVs and how to sort of join across them and have it presented without actually needing to uh, sort of insert it into a database, although you can. And I think uh, DuckDB is different than like SQLite. SQLite sort of focused on the transactional, right. you know, like single user thing versus I think DuckDB's focus, which it's more on the sort of like streaming log of data just dumping out and you're sort of aggregating and doing analysis. And uh, there's sort of this distinction arriving between the two approaches and there's a lot of trade-offs here. Yeah, go ahead. I think DuckDB uh, is read-only. And so because of that, they could do a whole bunch of optimizations. Uh, okay. Yeah, so it's it's sort of like you're not meant to be doing the like crud stuff, right? And right, you know, right. just sort of like going in and manipulating single. It's just sort of like you just keep appending to it, uh, and it's keeping in log. But I think that's an entirely sort of like powerful thing to do. And like we were mentioning, not being afraid of SQL. I think putting a bunch of stuff in a SQL dashboard and allowing you to write queries on it, rather than I I find myself often trying to do things in Excel with CSVs and not very powerful Excel either. And it's not really the right tool for the job. Right, so there's like right. a set of tools in the tool belt that exists in this space that I know I'm personally weak on. This is amazing. What is the the dashboarding like? You know, you can create like uh, time series and pie charts and all of that. Is it pretty good? Yeah, I mean, if you sort of look, I, it's going to be hard to do over an audio <laughs> podcast. Right. If you sort of look at there in the documents and sort of look at the developer documents, they have some pictures of the kinds of uh, dashboards I do. I don't think it's as big as you might get from something like a, you know, production dashboarding company. Right, like Tableau or something. Um, but I think it's in the same, but yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is really, really cool. Yeah, folks should definitely check this out. This is awesome. Oh, yeah, I see that backed by DuckDB and Druid. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, this is a winner for sure. I'm actually going to try this today. <laughs> Uh, I, I scored one. Yes, one Jason hasn't tried yet. <laughs> and it wasn't a video game. I wonder like how, yeah, gosh, so many tools of the show have become just permanent parts of my workflow now. I think I feel like that's, uh, for us, uh, you know, for us, I think that's the, uh, personally, like the part of the content of the show that I, gets, that I get the most out of. You have some amazing tools over the past, like 
10 years or so. That's what you got to get auto GPD to do is like get a task list, which is like go through and extract just the tools of the show, just the book of the show, just whatever into like mini podcast channels. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, we should have a, or, or just, I, was, I thought you were going to say a Google sheet. <laughs> like it'd be awesome <laughs> if, if GPT could scrape programmingthrowdown.com and put all the tools of the show. If you do this. No, no, but people want to listen to our rendition about why it's such an amazing Oh, yeah. Even better would be if it put the MP3 like timestamp or something like some some deep link into the MP3. I don't know if that's even a thing. Um, OK. All right. Let's jump into <laughs> position localization. Yeah. Take it away. Yeah. So, you know, I'll kick this off by saying that I, neither Jason or I, this is a disclaimer we always give or, or, or mostly give, neither of us are, are experts in this, but we've both been around it a little bit and familiar so just want to a bit like set up the problem and then introduce some of the kind of like terms and, and kind of things you'll hear i apologize in advance you may want to tune out if this is like the thing you do all the time uh you you may, you <laughs> yeah. may find some of this events is the same thing we give for some of our more uh impassioned uh, lisp uh programming <laughs> languages that we talk about but one of the things that isn't always obvious to people is uh how do you just like figure out where you are? Like we have this, you know, as humans, I guess, kind of understanding yep. of where you are. When we start talking about a phone, let's just talk about a phone. Like how does a phone know where it is? And I think people probably mostly, but we'll go over it, say, oh, it's just using GPS, right? So we have these satellites up in orbit. Um, roughly the satellites know where they are very precisely because it turns out like orbits are something that math can predict really well when there's not, you know, air friction and we sort of know how they change over time and where they are. So uh, you can kind of download basically a description of all the GPS satellites and like what their orbital parameters are and sort of understand kind of what you would expect. These things are, 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 are somewhat knowable. And without getting into the details of how a GPS receiver works, it basically listens to the radio signals coming down from all the GPS. And by knowing the, figuring out the exact time it is with atomic clocks and knowing this orbital data, correcting for some things and listening to a bunch, you you have an understanding of how far your phone is from each of the satellites. And knowing how far your phone is, the, well, the GPS receiver is, the antenna, is from each of the satellites, you can run this solution to figure out where you think you are. And the more satellites you have, the more refined you can get. And this normally gets you, you know, uh, and if you're in the middle of a, you know, open prairie, uh, yeah, this is going to get you down to a pretty good, like, couple meters, you know, a few yards uh, kind of thing without a lot of a lot of things. And there's a lot of improvements you do on getting that refined and fancier and fancier GPS. There's noise in the upper atmosphere, and you know, you can use base stations, known positions to offset. This is a whole thing we're not going to get into how uh, like GPS position position mm -hmm. works. Those positions only really come in sort of like you know, normally you kind of get on like once a second or maybe ten times a second. Uh, which you say, oh, that's pretty fast. And you're right. For like a human walking around, like, you know, that's probably, you know, generally knowing where you are. If you have, uh, you know, if you had lost your phone and you knew where your phone was within a couple meters and, you know, it only updated every few seconds, you'd be able to find it. Yeah. Uh, and so this is the most common, common one you do. The first problem you run into with that is, okay, but what if I'm inside? Turns out like <laughs> the things that make our shelters are, you know, buildings, our houses, our, our malls, or even like downtown and the city, you start to run into a lot of complications. Either the GPS signal is bouncing around and it's, it's called multipath. It's very confusing. Or 
uh, if you're inside, you know, a, a bomb shelter, let's say, you, you just can't, your phone can't hear the radio signals. It can't receive, there's not enough radio energy making it through. And so, you know, then what do you do? So I have kind of a, maybe a, a dumb question on the part you already talked about. So like, so GPS, so there's, there's satellites that are going in orbit around the earth, or maybe they're not, they're in some kind of stationary. No, they're, they're actually very low orbit. So they're actually going pretty fast across the sky. Okay. So there's, there's GPS satellites going fast across the sky. What does your phone do to talk to them? Like, are these satellites just constantly just sending out like spheres of energy and your phone's picking up on them? Is that how it works? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So they're all broadcasting uh, a, a set message basically at a specific rate. And as you pointed out from radiating out from the antenna, an antenna has like a specific kind of pattern for strength. But basically, it travels at roughly the speed of light in a bubble. Got and it. And so if you're, and, and there's no two-way communication. I guess that isn't obvious, but your phone doesn't talk to the GPS satellites. GPSs are broadcast only, or at least for, for the intensive purposes of this conversation, right. they're only broadcasting out. And they're just broadcasting out there. Basically, it's like their metadata with the time code and this kind of stuff. And they're just broad, broadcasting out this kind of thing. It's a very, very specific pattern with some specific nuance in it that allows you to do a precise timing of understanding the two things when the satellite believes it sent the message and when you heard the message got it so if you know that then you know the distance to the satellite and if you know the satellite's orbit then you know sort of where in the earth frame like the satellite was at that time and you're trying to work backwards to where you are based on this, but giving you one, if you know, let's just say you assume you're on the ground, which isn't a good assumption, and that the earth is the complex thing to describe, but basically the earth is roughly a, a ball. We'll just right. say that. Uh, the earth is a ball and you assume you're on the surface, you kind of project out that sphere. So then you would kind of know where you are in a roughly circular shape, right? Because this, a circle is the shape that you get when you intersect oh, the right. radiating ball of a GPS satellite and the ball of the earth. Um, I'm hand-waving a bunch there. If you had another one and you knew another distance and you intersected all three, the ball of the Earth, the ball of satellite one, the ball of satellite two, you would sort of know where you are instead of on a circle, the sort of two points on the circle, where is the intersection of all three. So if you right, imagine taking right. a circle and intersecting it with a, a sphere, right, because you know the distance, you know sort of like what those two points could be. Yeah, so I think it's like every time you intersect you eliminate a dimension, right? So if you have yes. two three-dimensional things, you intersect, you get a two-dimensional object, in this case, a circle. And then when you intersect the circle with something else, you get a one-dimensional object, which are these two points on a line. And then if you could do a third one, I guess at that point, you would get a, a single point or a fourth one, uh, or whatever yep. it is. Yeah, yep. no, no, you're right. Except that we have to work backwards a little because that first assumption that you're on the ground and that the earth, like the, and that the earth's sort of surface is flat uh, is actually uh, horribly untrue. Right. And so, uh, like, you could be in a plane, you could be on a mountain, right? Like, any of these things. And so, uh, you actually want one additional one. And so, to eliminate, so that you don't have to start with the assumption of that you're on the center, on the surface of a, you know, ball. And so... Oh, I yeah. see, I see. Yeah, you're right. So, if you don't, if you don't have the Earth, if you didn't make a ball out of the Earth, like, if you left that one out... Then, then you could you make up for it just by having more satellites. You could do the same thing. So you start with one satellite, you know you're on a sphere, you know, then you say the second one, now you know you're on, yeah, so it's just you start one back. Got it. Right. Cool. 
And so this works incredibly well. There's a ton of nuance about refining the, so eliminating the dimensions is sort of first step. And as you get more and more satellites, you sort of reduce your ambiguity, but only to a point because then there's sort of issues with listening to these signals and understanding like how precise can you measure that distance? So you're not actually getting a point, you're getting sort of an uncertainty and the uncertainty is depending on like, for instance, if the satellite is down on the horizon, it's it's traveling through more atmosphere and it's more ambiguous versus if it's straight overhead, that's really good for you. And it's just like a variety of other factors that give you a sort of blob of uncertainty that's shaped in a certain way. And you can do various techniques to kind of like squish it tighter and tighter so right. that you know better where you are. And none of that works as soon as you can't see the satellites. So before we go into size, I guess while we're on that topic, we should go to one other thing people kind of know about. Um, which works roughly in the same same way, but it'll also work for indoors, which is I, what I described works great, except if you've ever used an old satellite receiver or today, if um, you know you use like something that doesn't have a cell phone antenna or a Wi-Fi antenna in it for this purpose. Um, so like I have a, a little drone, like a DJI drone, you take it outside and it takes a while to acquire satellites. It sort of says acquiring satellites, acquiring satellites. Right, right. I had this old Garmin that did that. Yeah, exactly. And the reason why is it has to kind of receive these messages, do a bunch of disambiguation, and it takes a while to sort of update itself, to learn the new corrections to all the orbital mechanics, to kind of all this stuff has to take place, and it takes a while. And as you said earlier, if you're inside, there's yep. nothing you can It will do. just never finish because it doesn't ever get a radio signal that it's just sitting there listening for. Uh, and so there's all these techniques for helping figure out where you are a lot quicker, and then you know what to listen for, you're resolving ambiguity. So one is if you have a cell phone antenna, you can do the same thing with cell phone towers. So we cell phone towers are mm. very precisely location known. They don't move around a lot, right? Because installed on a giant tower. <laughs> right. uh, and so you can use cell phone antenna location and relative strengths to do effectively the same thing, right? It's very similar, but you're using, instead of just the message and the timing, you're, you're using signal strength to estimate how far away you are. Um, because this, the signal attenuates uh, much quicker. It doesn't, it's not broadcasting from space. Right. And then when you move inside, uh, it turns out you can also do the same thing, but cell phone towers are a little harder. They're not really inside, a lot more noise. But it turns out we installed a lot of mini cell phone tower equivalents, which are Wi-Fi routers. And so a long time ago, people learned, oh, okay, we can go around and most people don't move their Wi-Fi antennas around. So if you sort of understand where all the Wi-Fi, so you've, there was, uh, I'm not going to sort of name companies, but several, uh, some court cases, some other stuff where it turned out people were recording what uh, network name and router MAC address and stuff were coming because they were trying to uh, understand, they were taking this survey. They knew where they were. They could sort of estimate where the Wi-Fi router was by looking at it over time. And then if someone else saw it later, you would basically have some database which showed you this special number router with this name is at this location. And sometimes it would be wrong because a person could have moved it in their house or turned it off. Um, but if you have enough of them all over the place, this becomes helpful. So this, along with some other stuff, allows you to more or less do the same kind of thing, but, but inside as well, outside, and sort of an additional input. Oh, that makes sense. So it's kind of like, a, almost like a Google Maps type thing where somebody walks through a mall and while they're walking through a mall, they're recording the signal strengths. And because they're walking like a certain pattern, they know exactly where they are. So, so they're like, they're giving ground truth. They're saying like, yep. okay, these signal strengths mean I'm in Macy's. And so then <laughs> when you go to Macy's, you know, you're not 
telling Google you're at Macy's or whoever, like you're not telling that company you're at Macy's, but uh, because you have the same signal strength as this other person, you know, like more or less, that's how it's working. Yep. And I, I mean, just in general too, naive way would be like, if you know where a Wi-Fi router vaguely is and you can see the Wi-Fi router, you kind of know where you are in, in sort of right. absolute terms, you know, approximately, right? Not close, within a few hundred meters, you know, sort of, where you are, because if you weren't there, you couldn't have heard that, <laughs> that you know, Wi-Fi router, if right. you assume the Wi-Fi router doesn't move, hand wave that a bit. Um, so these work generally pretty good for what I would say is sort of like sort of these slow update rates. But now if we start talking about, hey, you're going for a run, or you're, you know, in a vehicle, in an airplane, or in a car, or on your scooter, or your personal transit of choice, uh, rollerblades, um, and you're <laughs> nice. trying to do more than just understand where you are, but you want to know how you're positioned. So like if you're on a watch and you're trying to measure like someone's steps, you're trying to say like, how is the arm position, you know, changing mm -hmm. over time? And then this is where you start to add other sensors, sensors that don't give you your absolute position. They give you a relative position. And the relative position is just at each timestamp, how you've moved, basically, how you're oriented or how you're accelerating. Um, and the things that do that, we call those inertial measurement units, IMUs, and you have little gyroscopes and magnetometers and accelerometers and these tiny, tiny little chips that fascinating video, actually, you can go look it up. I think it's by, if I recall, Breaking Cats. Uh, I've not talked about this before. He does this whole thing about MEMS, these microelectronic machines. Oh, yeah, I've seen, I don't know if I've seen that one, but it's amazing. Yeah, it's like how they move relative to each other. They're actually these tiny vibrating pieces of metal inside of these uh, that are etched out, or silicon, I guess. They're etched out and doped in a certain way. And how they move relative to each other allows you to take these measurements with, it's not no moving parts, but not moving parts as we traditionally think about them, like things sliding over each other. They're just these little tuning forks, basically, that are vibrating around in your, in your watch. Yeah, it's and amazing. And so those, those can run much faster, you know, hundreds of hertz, 100 hertz. Like this is really easy. So you get a faster update rate. Now you can kind of see where we might be going if you want a very precise positioning, you're mixing the two, right? So you know where you are kind of globally, you know how you're oriented, also now know how you're changing over time. So you can say between two positions from GPS, how did I move? How did my, you know, these recordings, how did they move? And if you do integration, but integration here just means adding up the sort of how much acceleration you had over how much time tells you, you know, you kind of double interpolate it, you add it twice, you accumulate these. And what you're getting is you sort of take one position and then you add it up. And then as you get the next one, you sort of know it again. And what you get is in between how you were moving. So instead of just interpolating between the two and saying, I went on a straight line, you can actually say, no, I went on a bit of an arc or I went on a bit of a swerve or mm -hmm. a dip or I went really fast and then I'm starting to slow down. And these other things begin to combine. And this is where you start to get into needing a little bit of mathematical help. So I hand weighed over the math of getting all of those, but now we can sort of set up the problem where you end up working a lot of these kind of positioning problems that one, these all have noise. So it's not that GPS gives you a position with some error, this uncertainty, it also moves around over time. So if you sat in one position, you'll sort of notice your dot kind of wiggles and a lot of stuff tries to combat it now, but like your actual position being reported is not stationary, even though you might be stationary. So let's say you have an IMU and you're standing still waiting, you know, for whatever, you're outside, you're just standing still as a test. Um, your IMU says, hey, I'm 
he's not moving. She's not moving. Like we're just still, um, but the GPS is moving us like one meter right and one meter left. You can go, well, that's not really true. Like yeah. I have counter evidence to this. And so you need a mathematical framework that's going to let you handle the fact that some of this stuff is a little contradictory as well as we talked about doing this integration. But if I integrate my accelerometer, or my IMU readings over time to understand my position, and then I get a new GPS reading that's different from that, how do I handle, I, I clearly didn't instantaneously move from the result of my estimating using my accelerometer to the new GPS position, which we know has noise. So how do I smooth all of these together and benefit from the sort of pros and cons of each of these? And that's where you start to enter a lot of the mathematical framework of this part of the problem. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you're getting samples over time. And so the error is going to be different each time, right? Because there's it's drawn from some distribution. And then you're right, you have all this sort of contradictory things going on where nothing nothing's going to be exactly true. Hopefully that they line up. But, but yeah, you have to have some way of resolving. There isn't like a... Uh, it's not like you just overwrite one with the other. They're both sort of <laughs> contributing like uh, some amount of evidence. That's right. And so the one, and I'll, I'll just, there's, there are several here in, in variations, but the one that is like the topic everyone has probably heard is Kalman filter. So when you hear Kalman filter, most people have heard of this. It's useful for a variety of other things as well. I won't get into because mainly because I'll say it wrong, uh, like what exactly it's trying to do, but this is where that tool comes into play. Um, and the tool comes into play in understanding, I, I'm going to not use the mathematical words because I am groaning already at people I know who will be <laughs> upset. So if you sort of say, hey, I have a certain kind of distribution that my GPS error gives me, the variance of that signal, if you have an understanding of that and you have an understanding of the kind of noise in your IMU readings, the common filter is a structure, a framework to allow you to take those known things in advance add them to the construction of the filter. And then you have a sort of, I got a new measurement. I have an update. I'm making a prediction about where I'll be next time based on that. I get a new update. My prediction was wrong. How do I update my internal state so that I'm, I'm combining between the two? So I have an error number coming in, which is real, a, a number coming in, which is noisy. I trust it a little. Okay, how do I update where I think my position is using that? you know, that number and how much is that different from where I thought I was going to be refine my internal state a bit so that over time I'm sort of adapting to this. And you mentioned earlier sort of ground truth. The reality is you don't actually ever know the right answer uh, unless you sort of after the fact, take a survey or do some very complicated something you're not really going to know. And it's also not really that important exactly yep. where you were. So your goal isn't to get better. Your goal is to say, hey, I'm going to try to do the best I can with the information I have. And common filter in its various forms allow you to sort of do that, allow you to say, how do I do this? Predict, update, measure, understand the various performance of my sensors, put them all in together and sort of not just do a hacky, which is what I would probably have done, which is like, take my GPS number, do something, take my IMU number, do something. It's just one sort of call into a class that handles all of it, right? You know, you're yep. telling it in advance what it is and it's able to to kind of take care of this. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think the the thing that's nice about Kalman filters as opposed to us trying to like hand code something or using a neural network or something like that, although there are now like deep EKFs 
and there is that's a uh, whole separate oh, no. topic. Wait, what? <laughs> but yeah, um, but you know, common filters are you know they they work off of the covariance. So you know if if two you know approaches are always wrong in the same way, then you won't end up sort of overcompensating. Like let's say your let's say your GPS and your accelerometer they're always i'm making this up but they're they're always sort of biased to the east like when when one has an error that's too far to the east the other one also has an error that's too far to the east so like you have to think about all the pairwise or covariances so you have to think about you know if you have 10 different sensors you have um what like 10 times 9 different you know kind of relations there that you have to like keep keep track of you know the the common filter you know works off of those you know covariances that it accumulates over getting a lot of samples and so it's going to take care of that for you and so it's an extremely powerful tool do we ever do a show on kf i don't think we did i don't know I, I don't feel like it it's always one of those things that it's always like just past my like feeling confident to talk about or use you know what we should do? I know we both know who I'm talking about. There is a person who we should try and get on the show who we know who is amazing at this stuff. I'll give the really TLDR, but we'll, we should do a show on this. But there's, there's something called a Gaussian process. And the idea is you have a bunch of inputs and you assume that they're normally distributed or Gaussian distributed. And so that just means if there's going to be an error, it could just as easily be smaller or larger. That's the real hand wavy way of saying normally distributed. And so, you know, if all of your inputs are normally distributed and you have a process and the, the, the outputs of those process are like more linear distributed numbers, normally distributed numbers, then a Gaussian process will go through and like layer a bunch of functions to figure out like what composition of functions will get you from the inputs to the outputs. Um, and so a common filter is like a specific type of Gaussian process where I believe the function is quadratic. I think you're making some assumptions there. It's basically, it makes some assumptions that take a really, really computationally difficult thing and make it so that you could run it you know, on a watch. Um, that's basically they they figured out like what are the assumptions that I need to make to run this thing you know in reasonable time. So like if you have a ton of compute and not a lot of data, you know a generic Gaussian process is really the best thing you can do because it will like it will explore all the possible functions and compositions of functions. But that's just not practical to to do on you know on a reasonable device and and also like it it. You can get really odd things that you're not expecting. And so a common filter allows you to set really level expectations and on good compute. Well, we should do a whole show on it, but but it's, a, it's an amazing achievement. So I basically have one more sort of like category of things to talk about just in this introduction, sort of like drop a bunch of terms and then, and then run out the door. <laughs> um, and, and that is like when we talk about these things as well, what we've been talking about right now, I'll describe as... And this means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but real time, right? Like I'm trying to decide right now where I am. Um, and as Jason mentioned, using computationally efficient mechanisms because you want to do this potentially on something that doesn't have infinite power. Um, and so you're trying to figure out where you are right now. You don't know where you're going to be a minute from now or a second from now. You don't know any of that information. And that's pretty different from 
if you say, hey, I have a recording of all this stuff, like I went for a run and I get back, and this is not how they do it. I'm just saying they could. But if you go out for a run, you collected all your sensor information. And for instance, you know, you started and ended at your house. Well, then I know, for instance, I can put a constraint that at the beginning and the end, the two positions must be equal to each other because I went through my front door. And so if you snap those two together, then you can backwards like make offsets along the whole thing so that you sort of get a reasonable answer out. And you kind of call this like a batch, batch process. You batch Mm -hmm. up all the data and you process it at once. And at any point in time, you can look ahead and you can look back for uh, certain milestones or things you're looking for. But what if you need to do something similar? Like what if you wanted to impose constraints, but while you're going in real time, like, hey, I'm running past a fountain and I run past the fountain again. Like I knew that at the time, like I didn't need to wait till later to know that. Uh, And there are some techniques that use that because one thing we've not talked about is if you sort of watch any of the companies trying to do sort of uh, robotic vehicles, if you look at little robots that move around interior spaces, uh, they have need to kind of do do something in addition to just figuring out where they are. They also need to figure out how to move around the space and how to understand that there's, you know, hey, I'm a little tank treaded robot that's going to serve Jason a very refreshing milkshake uh, when he starts to get hungry because his auto GPT asked it to. (laughs) And so like the tank is in the other room, but it needs to know he left his sweater, you know, in a pile on the ground to avoid it. Right. So it needs to understand where it is, understand the world around it, how to maneuver. And it does this via a process uh, called simultaneous localization and mapping slam. You'll hear this referred to, and it uses some other things, but it all kind of fall in line with what we've already been talking about. So it can shoot beams of light out and measure distance using beam uh, pulses of light to a wall or to a, uh, you know, to the ground. It could use the same thing with ultrasonic sensors, like a, you know, kind of bat chirp, it chirps, and then here's the response back. And it's getting all of these distances to objects, to the wall. It can use its camera to understand things. And all of these become what I said, these sort of constraints. So for instance, if it goes in a circle and comes back and sees the same spot it's been before, it knows those two things must be like equal to each other, right? In space, even if there had been some drift and it didn't initially think they were. Um, And so you get these events that occur, you input all these different measurements and you're at the same time building an understanding of the space where you are and where you are in that space. There's some Udacity courses that go over this and like some of their uh, autonomous driving. They have like a, a class about it. I'm pretty sure they are free or at least were free at some time because I watched them. I think I they're free. Pay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, they have a whole discussion about a lot of these topics. So if you want to go like next level deep, they have stuff where they talk about common filters. They talk about slam. They have actually, um, I've seen it some data where they give you input and tell you you're a little robot. And they talk about things we didn't talk about here, like particle filters, yep. how to sort of understand multiple hypotheses is about where you are. And as you're getting new input, how do you build a framework where you're incorporating it? Definitely would recommend checking that out. And it's pretty cool because they have some data. You actually can try to do this for yourself in a simplistic thing without having to integrate a radar onto your milkshake delivering auto GPT tank. <laughs> yeah, no, Slam is amazing. Again, it could be a whole show, but but uh, you know, it's just fascinating. I think the way to think about it is you, know, you sent out a little ray out of your camera or it's, it's, it's passive, so it doesn't, not literally this way, but you know, you've collected a ray of data and it's red. And so you know that like if I was to shoot out a little ray that there would be a red thing there. But you don't know the depth, right? And so you know, you say to yourself, well somewhere on this ray is a is some red pigment. 
And then you turn a little bit and you look and you say, okay, now I have another ray. And if you have a lot of rays of red that all intersect, they say, oh, like this area in 3D, this is red. Maybe it's a part of a wall, a red wall or something. And so, yeah, all that stuff is just really fascinating and it you know, runs at, at scale. It's, it's just like a really, yeah, I would highly recommend checking out that. I've also checked out that Udacity course. I think you can basically take the course, but then if you want the certificate, then that costs a little extra. But you can you can audit the entire course. Really amazing stuff, I think. So now, you know, if you pull out your phone, if you go to, you know, Google Maps, Apple Maps, here, any of these map apps, you know, and you see the blue dot there, now you have an idea of you know, all the work that's being done on your phone to uh, to put that dot in the right spot. It's really remarkable. And you also know, uh, just one last recap, because you know, a lot of people have asked me this, you know, if you're downtown and the dot's bouncing all over the place, you also know why that is, because the satellite energy is reflecting, you know, off those high rise buildings. And now it says it thinks you're, you know, further than you are. And so that it accidentally draws that sphere larger. And so now it's trying to reconcile that with all this other data. And so you kind of find yourself either bouncing around or it says you're going east, you're going north. Like that's all because of that. This is a fun topic. This has been a good show. Yeah, this is great. Definitely you know, send us uh, some feedback if you do want to folks out there in the audience. If you want us to cover SLAM or KFs or stuff, you could definitely do that. Just let us know what you all think. It's great to get the feedback. There was somebody who posted on Patreon. I don't know if Patreon feeds are public or how this works, but somebody posted saying you know they watched our show. It uh, gave them the tools they needed to get into like some... Uh, coding bootcamp and now they're a c++ nice. developer which is amazing uh um, wow. again i don't know if the, the patreon stuff is public so i don't want to say your name but that is amazing if you're hearing this episode you know major props to you uh definitely makes us feel good that that you know we're able to help you out there which is really cool and uh yeah definitely send us emails post on on patreon and it's always great hearing uh what folks have to say thank you everyone yep see you later Music by Eric Barndoller. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.